I work currently with a, a federal program that assists law enforcement, medical examiners, and coroner's offices with resolution of cold cases. You know, it takes a very special, unique person to do death investigation. I was experiencing a lot of burnout as a death investigator. For me, the one big domino was removing alcohol from my life. Acknowledging is just kind of the first step and of shining the light into that darkness for sure. And who better to talk about the crazy ways we die and how short life is than somebody like me who experiences it daily. I mean, you never know when your time is up. Welcome to Respond to Resilience along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMTB. I'm David Dashinger, and on this episode, we'll be speaking about a unique area of emergency services. Uh, sometimes we go off the mainstream and talk about animal control, spirituality, or alternative healing. And today we'll be speaking with our guest, Catherine Pope, who is a forensic investigator and responder peer mentor. And our topic's going to be Catherine's career in death investigation, her path through PTSD, and alcohol use disorder. We'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We just reached a thousand subscribers yesterday. It's Respond to Resilience. We're also on Facebook, Respond to Wellness Inc., bbsradio.com, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and check out our website, respondertv.com. We'll be right back after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Respond to Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Rumley, LCSW EMTB. There it is, right on cue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, these are our free complimentary sound effects that we offer every every time that Bonnie's on. Uh, <laughs> we'd like to welcome Kat, Catherine Pope to Respond to Resilience and talk about her work experience and life experience a little bit. Catherine has uh, worked as a crime scene specialist for the Austin Police Department, a World War II casualty analyst for the Department of Defense Missing and POW Personnel Office, and a forensic investigator in Texas, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware medical examiner's offices. She now works for a federal agency on the missing and unidentified persons crisis, and she volunteered with Operation Identification, excavating unidentified migrants on the Texas-Mexico border and responds to mass fatality incidents when needed with DMORT. And that stands for Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Teams. Kat's been happily alcohol-free since February 2021. Welcome to Respond to Resilience, Catherine. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Catherine, and congratulations on your sobriety. That's a big deal. Thanks. Feels really good. Good. I know we'll get a little bit more into that later, but we're very happy to have you today. 
um, hoping that you can shed some light and talk to us a little bit about your early life and what led you into death investigation. It's quite a niche market. Yeah, my I come from a public service family. So my dad was a paramedic EMT um, and my mom was an ER nurse um, who ended up being a school nurse. And so um, I was raised, you know, kind of always putting others first and, and serving your community was kind of the most important value for us. And my dad used to take me, you know, on when I was on summer break, I'd go down to the firehouse with him, hang out. Um, sometimes I'd end up in the ER just hanging out and watching the party, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember this one day, this they wheeled this guy in and he had attempted to take his own life. Mm-hmm. And he had this stack, the paramedics brought in this stack of paperwork with them that he had researched this seed. I can't remember what it was, but he had researched the seed to ingest and it was going to end his life painlessly. And Nobody would know. And, you know, he had taken all this time clearly to research his suicide. And it was so sad that he had what I felt, you know, spent all this time when he could have been using it for for something else to make himself feel better, to really get curious about his his mental health and wellness. And instead, he was just going to end it. So that really kind of sparked this interest in my mind as, you know, I was like 14 or 15 years old about this abnormal, you know, the, the psychology of of mental health and, and these things that were kind of taboo, right? Nobody really, I don't know. I I didn't see much more of that case um, that day. I don't know what happened to that guy, but I've always wondered, you know, like what was going on in his life. And that kind of drove me down this path of reading lots of books on forensic investigation and, you know, the Patricia Cornwell, the Kathy Reichs. Um, I just knew from the get when I went to college that I was going to major in psychology or forensic science. And, and I did, I pursued it hard. Um, and I got, uh, very specific. I, I ended up really tacking on to forensic anthropology, which is, um, the application, you know, forensic science is the application of science to the law. And then anthropology is actually the examination of, of human or the application of human osteology, to the law. So, um, in osteology, what is that? That's the study of human bones. Okay. Human, uh, he, we examine, you know, human remains. We try to estimate using, um, research and path, me- path, past methodology. Um, you know, what we estimate, what your sex is, we can get pretty close on ancestry, which is, you know, a hot topic right now. And, um, in our field, we can estimate age up into a certain point, right? When we're, this is important for us, like up until uh, we stop growing about 25 years old, mm-hmm. and then we start to deteriorate. Our skeleton stops being, stops growing. And so it gets a little harder to estimate age at that point. And then we can also tell other things like how people, um, how tall people were, how they lived. So if we see any pathology, disease, um, things like that. And then we can tell how long they've been deceased up to a point again, right? Like the more recent they have been deceased, uh, the better we are at estimating those things. So, uh, so much fascinating stuff to talk about. And uh, I wonder, you know, when you're at a party meeting somebody for the first time, say <laughs> someone asks, okay, Catherine, what do you do? Um, how do you answer that? And and what's it like having that job title as your identity? You know, that answer to that question has changed over the years. Um, 
I learned pretty quickly that saying that I'm a death investigator or a forensic anthropologist <laughs> only opens me up for more questions. <laughs> and when I, you know, in the beginning, it was fine. People like to talk about forensic science. It's very interesting and exciting. And um, depending on the audience, you know, if it's the guy at Wawa <laughs> yeah. who sees me in my uniform, I'm like, okay, yeah, have a nice day. I bet you could do, couldn't do what I do. <laughs> right. But when I started to kind of experience burnout um, and some secondary trauma due to my job, I was um, not so happy to really say I'm a death investigator and hear mm. somebody say that's so cool because it started mm. to make me feel kind of crummy about myself. Like, well, I don't think it's cool. You right. know, I, I don't have the resources I need to do my job. Well, I've just finished an 80 hour work week, <laughs> so it's not so cool for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's my my close friends and family. We can communicate about my job and my title and the things I do. But as far as sharing it um, with the random person at a party, it's it's a little different. Sometimes I just say I work for the federal government. <laughs> that probably stops them right mm -hmm. there. Right? <laughs> I think it's interesting because we often learn about new first responders through doing this show. And the first words that come to mind when I think of you are last responder. Hmm. You know, you might not be unseen like us when the incident's happening, but you have to piece it all together after the fact. Um, and maybe it's that part that we all need to think about too. And how many more people do we need to help like you and reach? Yeah. I mean, we, <sighs> there's about 3000 um, medical examiner and coroner offices in the country and they all kind of do it a little differently. They're all under different agencies as far as like the health department or criminal justice. Mm -hmm. um, some are state, some are local, some are county. And we we have certifying boards, right? Like I'm a certified medical legal death investigator. And when we do have conferences and get together, we, we are commonly reminded that we are the forgotten ones in public service. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have, you know, there's the thin red line you know, the thin right. blue line brotherhoods. Right. And we um, we're not first responders and we're not out there putting our lives on the line so much as other folks. But I do get out onto the highway when there's a motor vehicle fatality and and that is dangerous, you know. So um, and I am exposed to, to diseases and, and sharp objects right. and volatile scene investigation. So there I think. The thing I've learned doing this work is that compassion is not a finite resource, right? We can be compassionate and caring and and open to all people, um, funeral directors, you know, like David said, um, folks that respond to the um, animal control situations, yeah. um, teachers, social workers, you know, anybody that really is getting out there to support their their community, I think deserves to do their job to the best of their ability with all the tools that can be in their toolbox. Do you think there are certain parts of your personality that make you really good at your job? Um, you know, I always make the joke, like I work with dead people cause they don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do really, I think, you know, it takes a very special, unique person to do death investigation. Um, 
I am extremely curious and I also have always kind of identified as like a little bit of a rebel, a little bit of an outsider. So I don't mind talking about taboo things like, um, you know, death, dead bodies. I don't mind getting in there, getting my hands wet. In fact, I really enjoy making, you know, the EMTs or the police officers on scene (laughs) very uncomfortable with (laughs) picking up human remains and not being bothered by it. You know, I don't put any of the little Vicks on my nose or (laughs) wear, I do wear gloves, but you know, that's, that's, I'm pretty strong. And that's a part of my, um, that's definitely a part of my personality that I think has helped a lot. I wanted to talk a little more about the topic of death and speaking about death and wonder why you think people have such a hard time talking about death and then how do you handle it when the topic comes up? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Um, These true crime shows and these podcasts that focus around, um, you know, missing, unidentified, um, you know, hot, exciting cases, it's it's interesting that they're so popular, but there's still this very hard line where people are not really comfortable discussing like their mortality and who better to talk about, you know, the way, the crazy ways we die and how short life is than somebody like me who um, experiences it daily. I mean, you never know when your time is up and short of, you know, making sure you're wearing clean underwear when you leave the house in the morning, you really should, um, I think it's important to live life like this may be your last day and really make the best of the time you have here. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that, David. I'd love to know your thoughts. I I don't know why people are so uncomfortable with that topic. <laughs> I know that what you're sharing, uh, Catherine, is something that we hear a lot from first responders. You know, we hear a lot of how life can change in a split second. And your average person walking around isn't thinking about it, right? Or they have a fight with their spouse and then jump in the car and something terrible happens and they're left with the guilt forever. Um, So I think first responders are keenly aware, just like you are, of how precious life is. And sometimes I think that puts a pressure on you, me, David, you know, in our professions, because I feel like there's this low level guilt. Maybe you can Mm -hmm. speak to this, but a low level guilt, like when you don't have a perfect day where you're thankful for your life. And when you realize something could have happened to me today, you almost have this guilty feeling like I should be thinking about that more actively, but then your average person doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, you know, it, I come up, I mean, I got an email earlier this week about somebody who said like, well, you signed up for this. What did you expect? Um, in response to, um, you know, a post that I had made and, and asking me like, well, maybe you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't ask everything about your decedent. You don't care about what their favorite color was, you know? And it's like, well, 
you know, I can, I can give compassion to the families and treat my decedents with respect while also upholding the sanctity of my mental health and wellness mm-hmm. and, and appreciating that, you know, this could happen to me mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and also being a scientist and keeping those things separate. Um, so yeah, that's a really, it's an interesting idea. I try, it's funny, you, um, I think you have to kind of compartmentalize for so long when you're in a job like this, right? You kind of, you leave it at home and that's, Mm -hmm. that's what I learned, you know, is like you leave work at work and you come home and it's, that's not realistic, right? You do kind of see things and think of things later on that remind you of a case and, and it's just not realistic. So why not talk about it? Why not bring it out and and let it do, you know, resolve the whole stress cycle, right? (laughs) What I think is, Acknowledging is just kind of the first step and mm-hmm. shining the light into that darkness for sure. Mm-hmm. Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is a nonprofit alliance of mental health professionals dedicated to helping first responders heal from trauma, tragedy, and stress. We help as they manage community crises and the everyday demands of ensuring public health and safety. Established in 2011, FCTRT was formed in response to a call for emotional help from the Stamford Fire Department after a traumatic fatal fire. Less than a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred, and members again served the first responder community. Most recently, COVID-19 created a need for our support. We provide free educational presentations, pro bono sessions to deal with community disasters, and an extensive referral service to trauma-informed psychotherapists. If you're a responder in Fairfield County and need help dealing with duty-related stress, please reach out to us so you can continue to do the job you love. Visit our website at fctrt.org or find us on Instagram at FairfieldCountyTRT. Um, so can we talk a little bit about who's responsible for establishing the identification in these um, decent cases? And can you just talk a little bit more about that just to educate our viewers? Oh, yeah, sure. So the medical examiner and coroner office, um, it, you know, is kind of set up for normal, I'm using air quotes if you're just listening, normal everyday kind of death, right? They um, are not really getting involved if it's a natural death, a person's been in the hospital for a really long time. Um, and they're elderly, they've got medical conditions, but if they're, uh, if cases fit criteria such as an unnatural death or, um, you know, somebody's not expected to pass, if it's a suspected homicide, suicide, um, accident, such as a car accident or a drug overdose, um, and then anything undetermined. So we don't know what the heck happened to this person. Mm-hmm. So that um, that's kind of the general scope of the of forensic pathology and medical examiner coroner system. And then from there, they kind of weed out and determine and triage cases that will actually have an autopsy versus just like an external examination with photographs and a review of medical records. And in the mm-hmm. end, uh, the, d- the doctor will sign a death certificate. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's the coroner's office that d- does that. But that's so that you can go ahead and bury your loved one or do a cremation or whatever, you know, you, you choose to do. Right. So kind of the outliers of those cases, right, are these unidentified people. And you could be unidentified because you're skeletonized or mummified. 
You could be unidentified due to a traumatic incident or um, something that's happened. You know, you're, you end up in the water and you decompose in the water. It's mm-hmm. difficult to establish identity. Mm-hmm. But best practices state that we need like a positive scientific identification. So visual ID is great if I keel over right here and, you know, mm-hmm. my husband finds me and he knows it's me and I'm in my house. And um, But if those other examples that I gave we have to kind of use other means of ID. So um, I work currently with a a federal program that assists law enforcement, medical examiners and coroner's offices with resolution of cold cases. And we do use, we do current cases as well, but generally cold cases of uh, unidentified and missing persons. And so we assist with um, those scientific IDs. So like DNA analysis is a good way to Mm -hmm. establish ID. It's also quite expensive and takes a while. Mm -hmm. Um, So we also assist with fingerprint identification and coordination of that, um, dental records, coding, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, any x-ray identification. We assist with getting forensic anthropologists on board to establish, remember what I talked about, like age, Mm -hmm. sex, ancestry, stature. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of limit the pool of missing persons we're looking for. So those are, those are some techniques of establishing identity. And obviously every medical examiner and coroner is a little bit different. Um, but we, so what I do kind of on a daily basis is, is assist these folks that with their investigation and kind of give them the guidelines and best practices and suggestions for that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff that we don't normally hear much about. And um, sounds like a, a day at the office can really be, different every day, right? Something different to yeah. going on. Yeah. So I actually, I got this job, um, about three years ago and it, I was experiencing a lot of burnout, um, as a death investigator in my, my full-time job at the medical examiner's office. Mm-hmm. And it was funny when I was talking to my primary care doctor, she's like, well, cause I was, I was having PTSD symptoms, which included what I thought was drinking too much mm-hmm. uh, alcohol and she was like, well, you could start going to AA and I think you should quit your job. <laughs> wow. And those, those were the two options she gave me. And I was like, well. <laughs> and at the time, did you recognize um, pretty straightforwardly that you were using alcohol to cope with your feelings? A hundred percent. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, I've, I've always drank alcohol. I've always been like a, a extrovert. I thought I was an extrovert, um, enjoyed social situations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I started really drinking um, daily to fulfill kind of unmet needs to really numb out and close off and just, uh, just stop sharing mm-hmm. my feelings and emotions, um, that's when the alcohol use disorder, I think, kind of kicked in. Yeah. And how long do you think you were in the throes of that piece of things? It was a couple years for sure. Um, and it was funny. So I started telling the story was because, um, so I was a full-time death investigator at a medical examiner's office. And then she told me, you know, find a new job. And I didn't think that was possible, but then this, um, this federal program came through and I got the position and it's work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I still work 40 hours a week, but it's not on the weekends. It's no, you know, I don't work holidays anymore. I don't work overnights. I don't carry my cell phone with me. There's no work truck in my parking, you know, in my driveway. So I thought, because my doctor said, you know, everything would just clear up immediately and I'd feel better. And 
you know, obviously that's not the case. That's not how this works. So, and then COVID hit. So I got this job in August of 2019 and then COVID happened, you know, February, March, 2020. Mm -hmm. And my friends, all my old coworkers were just getting crushed. Mm -hmm. You know, COVID isn't, is a a natural death, but that somebody needed to take all these remains. So very frequently the medical examiners were being called in to store and manage these cases. Right. So I, I just thought I was going to feel better getting this new job and I didn't, I, you know, tacked on from the burnout, this, you know, this unresolved burnout, this compassion fatigue that I felt and um, survivor's guilt that I felt just not being able to do, you know, I, I'm using air quotes again. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't help with this horrible new situation. And so it kind of got even worse for me there um, as far as feeling, um, just having these feelings and I didn't know what to do with them. And I just felt awful. So, um, you know, I, I do think that my job change kind of helped facilitate and push me towards, but it's not like it, you know, progress and success isn't a one way street, right. I kind of took a big step back at that point. And um, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until, so for me, the one big domino was removing alcohol from my life. Um, I don't think that's for everybody. I'm not like preach. Everybody Mm -hmm. should be sober, sober. But Mm -hmm. um, for me, that what that's what got me on my path to really kind of resolving all these, um, you know, all these traumas, all these stressors, all this, all this junk, and then sharing my story right with other people. So they know they're not alone because I super felt alone. Nice. Yeah, that's, um, it's also interesting, because usually we think of at least I do think of unhealthy alcohol use as like a separate and distinct uh, mental health issue from PTSD or burnout. But in your experience, did you find that they're interactive or related somehow? I mean, I'm not a doctor. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting research that's coming out about addiction. Um, And I think, sure, there are tons of people who are alcoholics, um, I don't call myself an alcoholic because I don't drink alcohol. And I think for me, um, saying that I'm powerless and that I don't, that I have a medical condition, that is not my story. I found that putting down alcohol and really getting curious about why I was drinking was extremely empowering. So my journey of my alcohol use disorder, turning it, you know, into sobriety was actually extremely empowering. And it was all for me, um, it was all wrapped up, right? So PTSD is kind of, and um, what I understand is that we kind of were stuck with our gas pedal down. We don't know how Mm -hmm. to relieve the stress, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we're kind of like always stuck in this hypervigilant state. And that was absolutely for sure for me. So I wasn't sleeping. Um, I couldn't sleep, number one, because my phone was sitting right next to my bed and it would ring a lot of the times. Um, And number two, I was I like had these these thoughts all the time, memories or they were, um, you know, visualizations and most of them stemmed from issues with my management or with my the resources. You know, they weren't dead people or dead people. You know, like I said, I'm I'm built to handle that. I enjoy and am happy to be the person that deals with decedents. Mm-hmm. I've seen lots of dead babies and, you know, handled community members that I know, um, first responders that have committed suicide, you know, really I've seen some pretty terrible things and yes, they're terrible and I'm okay talking about those. It was the like constant trauma and, um, 
you know, like back <laughs> getting knifed in the back yes. with from your own from your own people. Like individuals yes. telling like people that you work with saying like, oh, um, you signed up for this, you know, you knew what you were getting into with death investigation and medical examiner's offices, we don't really get things that we need, right? So there were no COVID masks, you know, there was no N95s mm -hmm. for my friends that were out there responding to those cases or, um, you know, just getting staffing at appropriate levels. It's just mm -hmm. a lot of these things um, that kind of led to me feeling these dramas and stressors and trauma. And then so I would drink to instead right. of talking about it. Right. I think and, what you're describing, yeah. Catherine, we hear this, uh, you know, Stacy and I hear it every day in our office so many times. It's not the calls or the visual. So many times it's what your colleagues are doing to you behind your back <laughs> or to your face or what your admins are doing or not doing. And it's always amazing to us how deep those betrayals hurt people. And I think that that isn't spoken about enough. You know, everyone focuses on kind of the glamorous, sexy part of all of our jobs, right? Like, tell me about the dead bodies. Tell me about yeah. the car accident. But no one really asks you, tell me about your peers who are hurting you every day and they know what they're doing. Um, and it's kind of an ugly side, I think, of all of our jobs. But what you're saying is that really fed the fire for you. And then when you got down to it, you started to use alcohol to just numb out from it all. Yeah. Because it's a constant, right? And I think even leaving that job or removing yourself from an environment can do so much, but it can't do the total repair that trauma work or stopping substance yeah. use does. Yeah. It's like two little kids skipping through a <laughs> meadow, that PTSD and alcohol use disorder, you know, they're, <laughs> they yeah. go hand in hand for sure. <laughs> So I know you're working on some really cool projects and um, they probably tie into what we were just talking about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Naked Mind Coach or this Naked yeah. Mind Coach and what do you do to help responders through that? Oh, yeah. So I, the magic of the face tubes and the interwebs, <clears throat> you know, the, the gods shined on me one day um, just before July. Actually, it was like mid-June. Uh, 2020, I got a, a little, you know, whatever link to sign up for this Naked Mind live alcohol experiment. Mm -hmm. And um, author Annie Grace published a book called This Naked Mind, and she really got into kind of the science of alcohol, what it does to you, um, how it affects sleep, your, you know, anxiety, mm -hmm. um, your health, all those things. And um, it's, it's an amazing book. If uh, you get a chance to read it, it's kind of just a little different uh, outlook on alcohol. And so she created these live alcohol experiments on Facebook 
And I signed up for a July 2020 live alcohol experiment. And every day you get a little video. And every day a coach comes on and interacts live on, on Facebook for about an hour. And then there's all these, you know, thousands of people in the Facebook community and you can share your story and, or like ask a question and there's interaction. It was like the very first time I'd ever talked to anybody about mm. not drinking. You know, it's just, it's just expected. Like that's what we all do. We all drink wine and we have beer after work and we um, take shots and it's cool and it's great. It's not great. You know, it was not working for me. And that's not my fault. It's not my fault that I didn't have the tools, but it is my responsibility now, right, to to take control of this thing. And so, um, you you know, you're you can take a 30 day break from alcohol during that month and learn all you want. You don't have to. You know, they call um, what some people call a relapse. They call it a data point because this is an experiment, right? You're kind of trying to see what it what life would be like for 30 days without alcohol, and if you drink. That is really important information to gather um, for you to really get curious about like, well, what, what was happening in my life um, just before I drank? How did it feel when I took that drink? You know, your BAC goes up for t- about 20 minutes and you have that euphoria and you feel really awesome. But then for two to three hours after that, your BAC tanks because alcohol is a stimulant and a depressant. And so is it really worth me drinking? Because y'all know I'm not going to just have one glass of wine. <laughs> right. Um, no. So I kind of, I was able to learn through all the information and, and this experiment that alcohol just wasn't going to do it for me. Uh, what an um, amazing uh, awareness building tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think but, the premise to a lot of times in our therapy office, you know, people think that, they, they need to stop forever, right? Or this, there's this perceived pressure that they feel from their therapist, too, that they have to quit forever. But I think what's interesting about what you're describing is it's 30 days. Just yeah. see what it does for you. See if you can do it. Some people would not be able to do that just with withdrawals or, or how much their blood alcohol level is at just yeah. to function each day. But I, I think it's such an interesting idea to tell people, just try it. For this trial period and notice. Yeah, I was terrified at first. I didn't think I could go one day. Um, and mm. like I said, I did not go the full 30 days. There were some data points in there and um, but, and that's okay. And you kind of just, you learn from it. It was really cool. So um, yeah. And then, then, so I ended up becoming a certified life coach through their certification program because I believed so strongly in, in their method and their framework mm. and, and what they say. And, I actually was chosen to be a live alcohol coach in July of 2022. So I was able to kind of, I read my journal to the, to the, um, you know, there's like 3000 people in the experiment um, live. So I was able to kind of go through with them what I was going through. And it's, it's great just to share. Um, The only other coach that I interacted with during my experience, um, he was a pharmacist. So I like, I latched on to him because like he was kind of, you know, he's kind of in our, in our realm, right? A yeah. little bit. Yeah. And um, I'm just so glad to be there to kind of, to, to be that maybe possibly sort of close to a contact for other people who are going through this. And there are a ton of teachers, social workers, nurses, um, mm-hmm. firefighters in, in the program. Um hmm. And so, yeah, that's the snake in mind. They also do, you know, like longer programs. They have, um, there's the book, like I said, and, um, 
And it's just, it's kind of a venue for me to, to get out and get comfortable sharing my story and talking to people. And along those lines, um, I know you're also putting together a podcast. So talk a little bit about that and how people can get in touch with you, find you on the internet, social media, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm getting ready. Um, I'm interviewing folks in my field right now. So death investigators, um, forensic anthropologists. We're a really small like niche, like you said, Bonnie. And um, yeah. I think it's cool because we all do things a little differently and we come from different backgrounds. There's EMTs who are death investigators. There mm-hmm. are um, funeral directors that are death investigators. There are professionals like me who came straight from like forensic anthro school Um mm-hmm. And so it's just really cool to hear people's stories. And while I'm um, interviewing them, I am weaving in, you know, like, well, what do you do to kind of take care of yourself? Um, what do, what did you do when you had a difficult situation? And I think there's nothing like that out there right now for us. Um, it is kind of a taboo topic. Uh, not necessarily like that mental health and wellness exists. I mean, they, uh, certainly they, there are EAPs and all of the ME offices, mm-hmm. but just admitting that like you want to share with your community, um, I'm hoping to be that voice because for me, there are amazing resources for people who are experiencing self-harm thoughts. Mm -hmm. There are amazing resources for people who are feeling like they're at their end and they may commit suicide. Mm -hmm. But I want to get at the folks upstream Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. start talking to them way before that horrible emergency event, you know, Mm -hmm. begins and it's harder to stop people. Is there any data that you're aware of on the statistics of trauma, PTSD, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicide for this population of medical examiners, death investigators? Is there any kind of data? Um, I have seen very little. I think there's a paper or two and there, I know there's something coming out shortly, but even so we, you know, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, um, has the Journal of Forensic Science, and there have been mental health and wellness um, publications on first responders, mm-hmm. uh, forensic science practitioners, so folks that are working in the lab, on DNA, yeah. um, individuals who view um, child pornography, those kind of mm-hmm. investigators. Mm-hmm. But as far as death investigators themselves, and I, you know, you can include for funeral directors for sure. They, yeah. Um, Definitely. It's, it's the communication with the family too. I don't want to ignore that. That can also be quite traumatic. And we never took a class on how to talk to family. Um, I'll share a quick story that kind of instigated this whole, I started a Facebook group uh, for forensic death investigators and there's actually almost 2000 people in there. Wow. And I went to a call um, on a weekend and it was a sweet little old man who had decided to end his life. And he had it all planned out. His wife was away with their daughter down in Florida. And um, they <clears throat> he actually covered his little lazy boy with a plastic bag. And he put a trash can underneath yeah, his arm. And he, he slit his wrist and died. And uh, the police department, you know, we worked really well with our state police department. And we're good friends and very supportive with one another. And so we went out there and we did the investigation you know, it's their job to notify family. Luckily, some medical examiners do that themselves. Um, I'm thankful that was never my job. Mm-hmm. But um, so he was going to notify family. And then once that was done, I would call her and ask her the normal questions that we ask. 
Well, he didn't want to tell her that this is what happened. He wanted to make something up, but he died of natural causes while she was gone. And he, and I, you know, instructed him that I did not agree with that. You know, I think you should do, tell the truth. The death certificate is going to read suicide. Um, She's going to find out eventually. Mm. Well, by the time I left with the body, you know, I, I did physically remove the remains at that agency. Mm-hmm. So physically remove him. I care for him, you know, with my compassion and take him back to the medical examiner's office for the exam and come to find out well, after I left, he had thrown away the, all the evidence, took the chair, um, took the trash can and, and made it look like a natural death. And she mm-hmm. calls me. A week later, when she gets the death certificate and chewed me out, I don't believe you. There's no way this was a suicide. The detective said this, blah, 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 screaming and yelling. You know, she's in her 80s, bless her little heart. She can't understand why it says this. And what am I to say? (laughs) I mean, she's grieving. She wasn't there with him. And I felt terrible. And then so this is where the insult happens. I mentioned this. I didn't mention any agency's names. Um, I mentioned this in this private Facebook group that I had, which was very small at the time. I had just started it, that this had happened. And I told the story and someone from the group who was also working with me told my supervisor and I got written up for sharing this story because it made another agency look bad. And so you know, a couple of things changed with the privacy concerns in my, in my Facebook group and I updated it. And, um, but that right there was just such a crucial, critical situation for me. And my experience is like, I needed to reach out to somebody. I needed to talk. I didn't know where to do it. I chose to do it on Facebook. Probably shouldn't have. Right. I learned that lesson, Hmm. but you know, that person could have come to me and talked to me and I could have taken it down or Other things could have happened. And and it was just such, I realized at that point, like, wow, I'm so alone. I have no one to talk to. I can't share this situation with anybody. And that like that right there is not acceptable. We can't, we can't go through those situations, you know, in our daily lives feeling that way. Right. That's not professional. Yeah. No, you're right. And it speaks to mentorship and the huge Mm. movement of for peer support, which I'm sure you've heard about a lot in the first responder world, but I'm hoping it gets to your world too. Yeah, me too. I've met some amazing folks in the peer support world. Um, My yoga instructor is also a police officer and and he's really steamrolling all of that um, with yoga rescue uh, here on the Eastern shore of Maryland. Yeah. And I'm, I'm meeting this, you know, firefighters and police officers and um, yeah, it's all about kind of getting out there, right? You just, you get your story out there and people come to you and it's amazing. Yeah, and building community, which sounds like you're doing that as well. And mm-hmm. um, so, where can people find you for your uh, this Naked Mind courses, uh, your tools, techniques, and your Facebook groups and all that stuff? Yeah, awesome. I'd love for you to check out my website. It's forensicsfound.com. Um, I actually have a tool, a free toolbox on there uh, for five ways to kind of deal with per- burnout. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got Instagram. Uh, I've got a forensics found is my kind of general health and wellness Instagram. And then I have an alcohol specific responders last call. Um, and yeah, I've got a Facebook group responders last call. I'm going to be doing a live event August 4th 
where I kind of, it's going to be a webinar style thing, like um, an hour where I kind of share my story and talk more about the courses that I'm coming out with in the next couple of months. And will there be replays avail- available for that? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Cause this, uh, this will probably air after August 4th. So, okay. uh, mm-hmm. but if people go to your website, will they find links to your webinar event? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all I'm, I'm hoping to get a lot of stuff out for folks cause this is good stuff. I needed this, so I know other people probably need it too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we've really enjoyed talking to you, Catherine. Yes, thank very you. much. So, and um, thank you for what you do. It's uh, it's obviously very much needed, and and you're bringing you are bringing compassion and heart to it, and humanity to it, and uh, it's super important. And thanks for sharing all this. It's you know you took us on a like a journey into your world that we don't <laughs> often get a chance to do. So we really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. And I really enjoyed being here. Most people don't like to see me out at work, right? <laughs> it means somebody has died. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, on that note, we'd like to invite you to like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Respond to Resilience. Our Facebook page is Respond to Wellness, Inc. We're also on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and check out our website, respondertv.com. Till the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself, take care.